Good morning, Illuminate. Great to see you all. A special welcome to those of you who are with us for the first time. I'd love to have the opportunity to get to know you. Um, I'll be hanging out right down here after the first service if you want to make your way uh, up there. So um, if, you, uh, if you weren't here last week, you missed a really important announcement that I made regarding the future of the church. I mentioned that in our first five years, God has taken us further and faster than we ever thought or imagine possible. And we have so many only God moments in our brief history. Uh, but we believe the best is yet to come. And so I began to lay out what that future vision of the church looks like. And part of that begins on September 12th. And for the four weeks following that, four Sundays following that, I'll be unpacking that vision so we know exactly what we're talking about. But what we're after is 100% participation. For those of you who call Illuminate your, your home church and you consider part of the Illuminate family, if you're not already in a small group, I encourage you to get plugged in for that five-week period. Three words used to describe that vision, bigger, smaller, deeper. Really, what we're talking about is expanding our reach, not only within our walls, but beyond our walls for the ultimate purpose of making disciples for Jesus Christ. So if you're not connected to a small group, at least during that, that time, I, I, would, I just strongly encourage you to get connected with us in that way. You can sign up through the app or through the website, and also uh, there's a table out in the lobby to do so as well. And there's folks out there if you have any questions about that. So if you have your Bibles, we are in Acts chapters 20 and 21. And I want to set it up by, by saying this. It's been said, and I think rightfully so, that the thing that will influence your life the most is what you believe about God. The thing that will influence your life the most is what you believe about God. And so as we work our way through the text today, we're going to see what, God, what Paul, the Apostle Paul, really believed about God. We've been studying this book for a few months now, just by way of reminder. The full title of the book is called The Acts of the Apostles. That's why in the second half of the book, it focuses on the acts of the Apostle Paul. And his story is, is quite amazing. What we've learned about him is that, well, it's been 20 years. 20 years since he encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ. He's on this road to Damascus. He has official papers in hand. He thought Jesus was a fraud. He thought Christians were a joke. He thought Christians were a threat to Judaism. He was a, a Jewish zealot. He wanted nothing more than to put an end to Christianity. But as we've said almost every single week, there is no Christianity. There is no church. We don't get to this place in history. Christianity would be this small little footnote in human history if it wasn't for this one event, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Paul did a 180. There's only one thing that makes sense. How would a guy who, who sought to kill, he oversaw the execution of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. How does that guy get his life flipped upside down? There's only one plausible explanation, and that is Jesus entered into his life. He saw, he encountered, he heard the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus said, Here's how it's going to go for you. You see, you think you're against me, but now you can't deny that I'm real, that I am all that I said I was. And so instead of persecuting Christians, not only will you become one, but you are going to suffer now. 
for my name's sake. And as the life of Paul begins to unfold from there, that's exactly what happens. It's one heartache after another, one mistreatment after another. Because of his faith in Christ, remember, he was a Jewish zealot. He was everything that all of his peers wanted him to be and more. And then he switches teams. And he becomes one of the most successful church planters, if not the most successful church planter and evangelist in all of human history. And he is met with great opposition. We're going to see exactly what Paul believed about God and how that influenced his life. What you believe about God is the most influential thing about you. What do you believe about God? Do you believe that he's real? Do you believe, what kind of God do you think he is? Many of us, we project the image of our earthly fathers onto our heavenly father. That's why time and time again, the scriptures reiterate the good nature of God. When God is asked to reveal himself, what does he do? He doesn't say, well, I'll, sh I'll show you my anger. No. It's, I'll show you my compassion and my love. Of course, the greatest demonstration of this is Jesus on the cross, giving what was most valuable to him and meeting your greatest need. Paul believed all of that. Because of this, watch this now. When Paul faced suffering, persecution, by the way, I have been having more conversations this last year than I have had in my 25 plus years of pastoral ministry. Christians coming to me, I had one right after the first service saying, you know, my Christian faith has always been comfortable, but the culture and society right now is making it very uncomfortable. It's pressing in on me. It's forcing me to make decisions. It's forcing me to become vocal about what I believe, what I don't believe. Why is that happening? because it's necessary. This is what you're going to see in, in Paul's life. It's, it's just remarkable. Let me, let me summarize. Let me, just, let me summarize chapter 20 for you. So here's what's happening. Paul is in the city of Troas. He's there with friends, and he's leaving the next day. But he wants to maximize his time with them, so he's teaching, he's preaching, he's, he's in this person's house. And then there's this really bizarre event that takes place. Sometimes you read the Bible, and you're like, why is that story there? We'll come to understand why the story is there, but let me explain it to you. You can read it for yourself. Again, I'll summarize it for you. Paul is preaching. He's teaching. The day is getting really long. There's this guy named Eutychus. He's, he's listening to what Paul has to say, and the text tells us that he's sitting beside a window. And as the day gets longer, and Paul's talking, and he's talking, and he's talking, and Eutychus is getting tired. Now, I've had some really strange things happen when I've been preaching. I've even had some people fall asleep on me. Why do you think? We don't serve decaf here. There's a reason why. Okay? We're putting some Red Bulls out there pretty soon. Okay? I've had people fall asleep on me, right? You've done that before. Sometimes it's hard. Day's getting lost. The sun's setting, and Eutychus is tired. He's sitting by a window. The dude falls asleep, and he falls out the window, lands on the ground, 
and dies. Everybody's super bummed. I mean, that'll put an end to the meeting fast. Everybody rushes down. He's dead. And Paul's like, well, let's see what God wants to do. And God, through Paul, it's all, it's all God, through Paul, raises him back to life. And then it's like the story ends. And you're like, okay, what's the point? Well, I think this is God once again affirming Paul as being one of his own. Previously, we read how there are just simple pieces of cloth, like handkerchiefs would touch Paul, and then people would be taking him home, and they would touch the sick person, and they'd be healed. All this power through Paul, God's power. Now, God, through Paul, is raising this dead man to life, and it's, it's as if, it's like, it's validating who Paul is and his message, right? It's like people are going to go, we might want to listen to what this guy has to say, because clearly God is working through him. But additionally, this uh, commentator named Andrew Arterberry, he made a really interesting uh, footnote. He said, there's only a few, and this is right, there's only a few miracles that take place at night. And he tells us that in the first century AD, Jews believed that God worked primarily or even exclusively during the daytime, not during the nighttime. And so what he's saying is that if you're a Jewish reader or Jewish listener and you're hearing this story, the fact that God works at night, that's, that's compelling. Because what he's saying is God is not confined to daytime. That's not just when he works. God is always working. So be ready. Be ready. Now, what's interesting is that when Jesus comes on the scene, he gives several parables and he talks about things that happen at night. Like, for example, he says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back like a thief in the night. He's going to work at night. So the point is, God is always working. So therefore, you should always be ready. Always be aware. So after, after this crazy uh, event, Paul leaves Troas. He's headed for Jerusalem. He gets on board the ship, and the ship stops in the town of Miletus. And while he's there, he summons church leaders who are in the city of Ephesus. They come, and they join him. And it's a really emotional encounter because they sense that they're never going to see Paul again. And indeed, they're right. Uh, in a short time, Paul will become a prisoner of Rome, and he will remain that way. Um, this is where Paul says to them, it's more blessed to give than to receive. He quotes Jesus. He says, listen, you know that I have worked with my own hands. Many times I've supported myself. I've been faithful to the ministry. Now that I'm going to be gone, I need you to stay strong. Stay strong in the faith. I, I probably won't see you anymore, so stay strong. So what happens is you, there's this picture of these grown men, and they're crying because they love Paul, and they know that they're probably never going to see him again, at least on this side of eternity. It shows you how much Paul was loved. But Paul is eager to leave there for a very important reason. He wants to get to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost, and the reason why is because he's doing something special. He has a special mission. And it's actually extraordinarily meaningful. The church in Jerusalem was suffering. It's not cool to be a Christian in Jerusalem at this time. Remember, when Paul was in Jerusalem, he gets, keeps getting beat down and beat down and driven out of the city. Oftentimes, he dusts himself off. He would go back. 
but he's been traveling up through Asia Minor, planting churches. Now he's headed back to Jerusalem. And with him, he has some Gentile converts, non-Jews. And with them is money. Because as Paul went into these Gentile regions... He said, you know, you have these brothers and sisters who are Jewish. They have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. You're all one family now, but this, these family members are really struggling. It's really rough right now in Jerusalem. They need your help. So give. Open up your wallets and give to them. And they do. And then we start reading this list of names. Paul picks up these different traveling companions. These are Gentile names. So now, you got to picture this. Paul is traveling back to Jerusalem. He's got these Gentile believers with him, and they're about to enter this Jerusalem church made up of Jewish Christians. This scene would have been just unbelievable, unbelievable, and, and just so totally foreign for its time. These Gentile Christians have collected an offering to give to Jewish Christians. Now, remember I told you in the past, Jews and Gentiles, you talk about a race war, you talk about, about um, ethnic prejudice? Jewish rabbis had a saying, God, thank you for not making me a dog, a woman, or a Gentile. The Gentiles looked at Jews as little more than slave labor. And what's happening is, under the banner of Jesus, these two different groups, formerly hostile, are now coming together as family. Let me tell you, no matter what anyone tells you, nothing is more unifying than biblical Christianity. The world had never seen or experienced anything like it. So it must have been this amazing picture. So this is why Paul is eager to get back to Jerusalem. He's got these Gentiles with him. They have this money. They want to be a blessing. But it's more than that because the message has to be sent. Whatever man lifts up to divide, Jesus melts away. So there were some Jewish Christians who are like, no, 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 Jesus is just for the Jews, not the Gentiles. But all these Gentiles are now coming to faith, and they're kind of having a hard time accepting it. So what a beautiful bridge to have these Gentiles mixing with Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians coming together and saying, we're here to be a blessing to you because we're all on the same team, and that is Team Jesus. Now, all along the way, as Paul travels, almost from city to city, he gets these messages of impending doom. Like, hey, Paul, it's going to be really bad for you when you get to Jerusalem. But he won't be deterred. Paul knew his purpose. He's willing to pay any price. And that kind of, that kind of courage, it motivates those around him. Chapter 21, verse 1. So, and when we, and the we includes our author, Luke, He's joining Paul at this point. And when we had parted from them, that is the believers in Ephesus, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. If I was to show you a map, this would all make perfect sense to you. It starts in the region to the north in Asia Minor. Jerusalem is down here. All these towns are ports where the ship would stop. It stops in one location entire, and it begins unloading its cargo. Now, just to give you some insight into how people felt about Paul, the Greek word describing, uh, the Greek word for parted literally means to tear apart. It's like you take something and you rip it. You have to force it. You have to force it to 
right? Force it into two pieces. You rip it apart. That's how people felt about Paul. So here's this guy, one of the most successful humans in history. This amazing, if, if pretty much, you know, any other evangelist, teacher, preacher, if you had the kind of success that Paul had, you'd be pretty arrogant. The temptation would be there, but not for Paul. He cared about people. He was still the guy that everybody wanted to be around. He was this rare combination of success and humility. How does that happen? Well, first of all, it happens because you understand the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because when you look to the cross, you see two things about yourself. Okay, you ready? Number one, you realize that you're pretty jacked up. In fact, you're worse than you think you are. Okay? Because Jesus had to die in order for your sins to be forgiven. The Bible says that God is a just God. He can't turn a blind eye towards sin. You and I, when we see somebody do something wrong, we say, man, that justice better come to that person. They better get what they deserve. But when we do wrong, what do we cry out? Mercy. Mercy. At the cross, you get justice and mercy. You also get love. Because the cross tells you that you are far more valuable and you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. You're worse than you think you are, but you're far more loved than you know. So this is where humility comes in because when you start to think too highly of yourself, no, 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 the cross brings you low. And then when you start to think too low of yourself, no, the cross brings you high. So this is great because Paul understands it. So he knows any good work that happens as a result of his efforts is because of the power of God behind him. That's why here at Illuminate all the time, we say, oh, that's only God. Only God. people that know me well, they're the ones who are screaming, only God, right? Only God. If, if, if you knew Jason, if you knew the rest of the, you know, we, we want to imitate Jesus. We want to be examples. But at the end of the day, this is a total and complete God story. And that's where the humility comes in, and Paul gets it. So there's this tearful parting of the believers. Paul gets on a smaller sailing vessel, kind of like an island hopper, if you will. This is a ship that was meant to go from town to town, hugging the coast, which set anchor at night. Not a ship big enough to cross the Mediterranean. That was very difficult, especially uh, when the winds kicked up in certain seasons. It could be life-threatening. But on this journey, it says that he stops off in Rhodes. And so this is a little side thing that I would just want to share with you real quick. Um, it's possible, I think highly likely, that Paul would have experienced one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world known as the Colossus of Rhodes. Now, in 200 BC, an earthquake hit and destroyed this massive, massive statue that most think sat somewhere around the entrance to the port of Rhodes. And in fact, I'll show you this, this picture of what they think it might have looked like. Now, when earthquake hit, this thing was destroyed in 200 BC. That's 200 years before the time of Paul. But ancient Roman historians tell us that many pieces of this statue were still in place, or at least, you know, somewhere on the ground located nearby up into the first and second century AD. So when the text says that Paul cruised through Rhodes, he probably would have experienced the grandeur of this city and what it was once known for. This was a statue to the sun god, this massive statue. I share this with you because I've said this many times. People just have no clue what the Bible contains. Many people approach the Bible and they think, well, it's filled with fanciful stories, maybe some mythology. You know, Jesus was a good moral teacher and it's good to be more like him. No, not even close. Understandable, but not even close. The book of Acts is written in the style of history. 
So it contains real places, real events, and real people. It's not written in the style of Greek religion or Greek mythology. There's none of this fantasy to it. These are actual events with real people and real places and real times. So Paul is making this journey from the north, Asia Minor, to the south, Jerusalem. And he's, uh, he's stopping off in Patara, a large and, and busy port. Since he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, text tells us that he went straight across the Mediterranean. This would have been on a larger vessel. Again, rather risky, but um, Paul is adamant about taking these funds and getting them to the Jerusalem church soon. So let's pause here for a moment and ask this question. What is it that you think made Paul so effective in his ministry? What made him so effective? I think a combination of two things. Number one, Paul knew God. He understood the scriptures, but he didn't, he didn't just understand them, he applied them. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's such vivid language, but what it's describing is, you have to ingest it, take it in. Don't, just don't, don't observe, observe it from a distance, read it and act on it. And then what happens over time, you begin to see the truthfulness of the scriptures. You begin to experience the goodness of God. When you taste, then you see. Additionally, I believe that Paul understood he was here for something far larger than himself. One of the great virtues of American society is autonomy. The idea that nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me how to live. And then you're confronted with the Bible that says, if you do that, you're going to become undone. You make a really lousy personal God. You see, God actually created you to live for something much bigger than yourself. Many years ago, a pastor in Southern California named Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. I think I mentioned this before, but when I got a copy of it, I read the first line, the first sentence. First sentence says, anybody know? It's not about you, period. That's the opening line of this book. I remember thinking to myself, who's going to buy this? Oh, this guy just embarrassed himself. Nice try. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong. It went on to become one of the best-selling books of all time. Why? The answer is simple. Because Rick Warren touched on the raw nerve that is within every human heart, and that is to live a life of meaning and purpose. We're all struggling with that. The more we seek purpose from within, the more we struggle. Meaning and purpose was not meant to be found from within, but from without. I think Paul understood this really well because, you see, he's going to have people that he loves dearly speak into his life and tell him, Paul, don't do this. <laughs> don't go to Jerusalem. If you go, it's going to be bad for you. He's already had people, people that he cares about, people that he loves, speak into this. There's going to be more. And they're going to try to deter him from accomplishing God's greater purpose. So he's going to receive these chilling warnings. Um, well, 
verse 4. And after saw, after ha, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there in the city of Tyre for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So this is really interesting. The Spirit of God, through these brothers and sisters, were literally telling Paul, the Spirit is telling us to tell you, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, this really messes with some people's theology because some people will say, the Spirit of God spoke to me and told me to tell you this. Well, that's what's happening to Paul, and Paul doesn't listen. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, see, all right, here's the scene. Children, they accompanied us until we were, we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. And we said farewell to one another. Then he went on board the ship, and they returned home. Paul, the Spirit of God is telling us to tell you, don't do this. And Paul says, you're going to have to meet me at the beach because I'm getting on board the ship, and I'm going to Jerusalem. Uh, what's happening here? Well, Paul was willing to die, as we're going to see in a moment. Um, no doubt they're praying for Paul's safety, but I think in the end, Paul himself was praying for God's will to be revealed in his own life. And you see, God had already spoken to Paul earlier and said, you're going to Rome. And I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. So when his friends were saying, avoid the suffering, Paul's like, no, actually, um, I was forewarned that it's coming. Appreciate the heart, but I'm going. So when we, had finished, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, and again, Luke is including himself in this because he's joining Paul at this point. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He was one of the seven guys that was chosen to take care of the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem man had a great reputation. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So these, you know, whenever a prophet speaks, most often he's telling you something you don't want to hear. Old Testament prophets were constantly telling the people, get back with God, get right with God. You've been turning away. It's not going to be good for you. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took, picture this, he took Paul's belt and he binds his own hands and feet. So everybody's just kind of hanging out, and Agabus shows up, and he's like, hey, Paul, let me see your belt. He's off his belt. And then he proceeds to tie his hands and his feet. Okay, so he's got everybody's attention, being kind of dramatic, right? What does he say? Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem are going to bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Yet another warning for Paul. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping, and you're breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And we said, God's will be done. I'm really, um, this is amazing, this text. I've, I've been wrestling with it this week. Um, really well-meaning believers speaking into Paul's life for warning him to avoid the pain. And um, Paul is not persuaded. He knows what's coming. Let me ask you, what prevents you from entering into God's greater purposes for your life. 
You, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever even thought about the fact that God might have a greater purpose for your life? Chances are, if you're like me, probably something far less than death or imprisonment that keeps you, you know, from entering into that space. Uh, but here's the thing. Paul's friends could not see how God was going to use his suffering to expand the kingdom in ways unimaginable. So let me tell you what's ahead. Paul, when he gets to Jerusalem, he will, he will become a prisoner of Rome. While there, because he is a Roman citizen, even though he's a Jew, unique, he appeals to Caesar. He says, I want to be heard by Caesar. I want to take my case before Caesar, which he had a right to do. Do you know who Caesar is at the time of Paul? This guy named Nero. Nero was infamous for killing Christians, dipping them in tar, running them through with sticks, lighting them on fire, planting them in his gardens to light his parties at night. When Rome was burned, he blamed the Christians. And then to be a Christian in Rome was an absolute death sentence. All the while, as Paul sort of ascends the ranks, as he's being passed around within the Roman government, what is quite possibly the most powerful group of individuals that have ever lived, Paul talks about Jesus. About 300 years later, 250 years later, the outworking of the Apostle Paul's influence is this. The Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian through his mother. This changes the world in the best ways. There's an end to the gladiator games because you see, all men are created in the image of God. There is an end to infanticide because Psalm 139 says that God creates us in our mother's womb. The lower classes are given an education. Women are elevated to places in society that they never were before. Yet you see, you want biblical Christianity around. Like we've said a couple weeks ago, whenever Christianity enters a culture, it ought to be a force for good change. The interesting thing about our culture now is that it seems to be affirming all that is wrong. Not just affirming, but celebrating. And so some Christians are really uptight. This is a pressing in, no doubt. But for what purpose? I'm telling you, it's for God's greater purposes. We can't fully see the outcomes. But I can tell you this. We have many, many examples of when the culture has pressed in and God, through his people, have pressed on. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And the people say, God's will be done. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and the church leaders there tell him that the Jews are very upset with him again because he's saying that Jews don't need to observe Jewish customs anymore. It's like, Paul, they think you're undermining Judaism. So there's this group of Christians 
Christians, they're Jewish. They've embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And they're participating in this seven-day ritual. And Paul is told, if you pay for their ritual, for their ceremony, the seven-day period, if you pay for what they do out of your own pocket, it will persuade the Jews to believe that you're not anti-Judaism. And so that's what Paul does. And it doesn't work. The peace doesn't last. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. They laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. None of that was true. For they had previously seen Trophimus and Ephesian with, uh, within, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Again, they supposed that, but there's no evidence. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So Paul's falsely accused. The crowd gets fired up. The Jews seek to kill Paul. There's this commotion, and the Romans take notice. And what happens from here is that Romans take control. And Paul will be protected under Roman custody. Ultimately, like I say, he will be delivered up to Rome. So, what is it for you? Um, I would love to tell you that in this moment, Paul and those around him, you know, like they, they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. You know what I'm saying? It's like they manned up, right? But that's not the way to say it at all, right? They're going around beating their chest in this act of courage. They didn't man up, they faithed up. And the reason why they faithed up is because they understood who God is. And they understood God because they had tasted, they'd seen that the Lord is good. And that's, the, that's our challenge today, is that there is a mild form of Christianity because nobody's t- really tasting Nobody's ingesting. It's been comfortable for so long. Now it's becoming uncomfortable. Awesome. It's becoming uncomfortable so that God can use you, as he did Paul, to expand his kingdom in ways that you never thought imagined. Is it going to be easy? No. At one point, the Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ and his sufferings. That's heavy. You know, how, that is a crazy prayer. That is some extreme maturity. Jesus never said, hey, things are going to get easier. What he said is that the world will press in on you. They hated me, they're going to hate you. Uh, so, but here's the deal. Take heart, because I have overcome the world. In other words, in the end, we win. Let me just say that again. We win. So, don't let anything stop you from getting on the boat and making the journey. Even well-intentioned people who care about you. That was a strong temptation for Paul. Maybe I should listen to them. No, no God has already called me to this. I'm going to Rome. I'm going to suffer. Appreciate your prayers, appreciate the love and the tears, but I'm gone. You know, you get to that point because you're close to God, you understand God's will for your life. You can't have courage without facing fear. It was Karl Barth, regarded by many as the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century. Courage, he said, I love this. Courage is simply fear that has said its prayers. So let's pray. Father, you have placed us in this moment.
for a reason. It's our moment in time under your sovereign and providential hand. God, we take comfort in the fact that you love us, that you know us, that you guide us for your good purposes. Lord, it's not easy. There, whatever it is, Lord, there's something. You can't go through life without some, something wanting to distract you and pull, pull us away. God, make it clear. Most of us know exactly what those things are. But Lord, we ask that we would see in the life of Paul something we can imitate as we come to know you more and more, trust in your goodness, recognize your love, your sovereignty, and the great things you want to do first to us and then through us. As always, it's done for your glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, whose death, burial, and resurrection makes it makes it all possible. And God's people said, Amen.